This episode of Solar Stories is produced by Mouth Media Network and presented by Solar. The one thing that still, it absolutely gives me chills, I remember going to him with, here's a make or break decision. Can they, it was a question of, will you break the deal over this question? And it was about, can they use your name if you say no about X? Can they still? And he looked at me, the guy who came from a family of like, a, from a taxi driver with nine kids and practically no shoes. And he was about to get $22 million. He looked at me and said, I don't care about the money. I care about my freedom. And that, from that person staring at me, I, I will never forget him saying that. Betsy Pierce is an incredible legal mind in the fashion industry. And she's been named one of fashion's 50 most powerful. Some of her notable work involves big names you likely know. But to know Betsy personally, she is definitely not the stereotypical lawyer. Coming up, you'll hear why Betsy is a proud Minnesotan, growing up during Nixon and now living through Trump, the challenges of being the lawyer for Alexander McQueen, and a dramatic story of getting lost on a mountain in Telluride. I'm George Manley, and you'll find Betsy on Instagram at Betsy.Pierce and her story on this episode of Solar Stories, the art and business of influence. So Betsy, welcome. Welcome to Solar Stories. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your your time today. Uh, Thank you for your conversation. I'm very excited about what you have to say. Really what I want to know, Betsy, is is I want to know, and I think our listeners want to know about you. So this is an opportunity to just sort of talk about the things that maybe get buried in your everyday life, mm-hmm. the things that power you, the things that get you out of bed in the morning, the things that you want to do with your life, the things that are memorable that you have done in your life. Um, the moments that maybe haven't been talked about enough, but you really feel like they formed you mm-hmm. um, or formed your career. And that's why you are happy to be the person that you are today. Um, so why don't we start there? Why don't you tell me where you grew up, kind of what took you through the early stages of your life and then, um, you know, where you are today? Honestly, where I grew up is probably, if I can think of anything that really is formative, uh, of all things in the universe, I am Minnesota born and bred. And I have to say, if there's one value that I would like to live up to forever, it is being a Minnesotan. And people have different views of what, you know, people joke about Minnesota nice. I think there's an undercurrent of they're really nice on the surface, but they're, they're still these sort of Scandinavians underneath. Tough brooding people. Well, a little bit. But to be honest, what I find amazing about what Minnesotans are, we're the only blue state kind of hanging out of the middle there. And it's not that uh, Minnesota is so liberal that this, I think the Scandinavian uh, heritage is more libertarian. Mm-hmm. Anybody can do whatever they want to as long as they don't bother anybody else. Right. But people will go to the mat to make sure people have the right to do that. And I just digress a little bit of how proud I am of my people. We have the highest population of Somalis outside of Mogadishu. Wow. Oh, Want to know why? I, did, I think I did know that. Why? Uh, that in the refugee crisis, a bunch of churches and synagogues in Minneapolis and St. Paul got together and created an entire social network and said, we have education, we have housing, job training. You are in a, across the world and have a horrible, horrible situation, war-torn. Come to us. We want you in our community. Wow. How great is that? So is that That's mostly... where I come from. I'm so proud of all these uptight white people saying, please, please be part of us. We want you. Is that mostly in the Twin Cities or even in the rural parts of Oh, Minnesota? that's the Twin Cities. Yeah. Um, well, that, I, I, how great is that? I find that that's true even in – I mean, didn't Sweden take in more um, more immigrants from the, uh, the crisis going on in Syria and elsewhere than any other northern European country other than maybe Germany? You know, that I'm not sure. But I do recall whether it's Sweden or Norway where there have been – uh, there's been a fair amount of upheaval. Oh, it's definitely because Sweden. in the same thing. It's definitely Sweden. I studied yeah. in Lyon my third year in university, in 
And that was the, that was the time of the original, the first Marie Le Pen. And it was the whole, the, the university students were, their moniker was uh, touche pas mon pot, which is their hand would be straight out and it would be don't touch my melting pot. And it was contrary to the Le Pen uh, movement of stopping the immigration. And it was very much the same sort of uh, nationist. There's nationalist and nationist is sort of the next fa- next phase of worse than nationalist of people with few opportunities, seeing their opportunities slipping away. And the political side, uh, people who are looking for political benefit out of that, turning turning those people in their anger against others rather than... Scapegoating. Well, rather than scapegoating and rather than having everybody take the big picture and say it's modernization, it's technology, that's, you know, that's the cause of people being displaced. You know, but who, who are you going to fight against in that? Well... I, my, you want to know my theory about the wall? Build the wall. Which wall? To, any of them. The wall, keep the immigrants in. Please don't go anyplace. We need you so badly because you make our country what it is. Well, that's a dream. A one-way wall. Please come in. So you grew up in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, what, at what age did you vacate Minnesota? I left, um, uh, spent a brief time. Uh, my father worked for the government mm-hmm. uh, in the Nixon administration. Federal government? Uh, yes. He was deputy special trade representative. It's funny. My grandfather worked in that administration. Really? He was the assistant secretary of commerce. I wonder if they knew each other. You know, my dad's uh, his specialization was international trade, which yes, has been so his was, whole so life. Yes, so was mine. Uh, and his sort of life's work was passing a trade bill. I bet they knew each other. It's a small world. That's amazing. I'll bet anything. Is your father still alive? Yep. 91. I talked to him every single wow. day. That's about the age that my grandfather would have been. He died at 87, like I think five years ago. And what was his name? Uh, George Becker. I'm named after him. Okay. We'll figure that out. I will, ask Dad, I, will ask Dad, I will ask Dad tonight. Yeah, he was in the Eisenhower administration and then also in the Nixon administration. Okay. Those were strange times. I was, what, 7 to 11, sitting in front of the television, and you know, Dad would say, things were a little stressful walking down the hall today. And in my third grade class were my two best friends, were Mark Halpern and Tony Segretti. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? And we would talk politics. In third grade. Oh yeah. I so was, you knew you knew what was going on. Did you? Well, none did of us did. You understand it? Well, none of us did. Yeah. As it sort of unfolded, but that was. That how do you how do you parallel that to today and what's going on right now? Um, I always ask that of people that went through the Nixon. So thing. far, what's going on today is so far above and beyond things that are just naked admissions. Would be uncovered with a shovel and say, oh, "Look, but we're so." inured to whatever it is that is shocking. I almost now, feel like because it's so out there, yeah. people There's no sense of a like hot discovery. Not, yeah, it's not a crime or, right. a, or a breach of our values because he's saying it happened. Right. But the idea of the... There's never been, I think, a concept of fake news before. Right. That we had... And I think this, this does come back to social media. We had Walter Cronkite and Barbara Walters and those people who were the news. There wasn't another source of news in the same way that... Roger Mudd. Right. In the same way that we had telephones. And if you weren't near the telephone in your house that rang and you picked it up, that's sort of it. Right. And if you you didn't know somebody's phone number, you couldn't dial it. (laughs) But you had to go to the white pages. Right. Or you found where to go in the neighborhood with the yellow pages. Isn't that crazy? It is, but I remember it and it worked. Um, And I felt like we were... uh, all pretty well connected then. Um, but, all right, so you leave Minnesota, mm-hmm. and you go where? Uh, Brown. And you studied undergraduate, what did you study? As uh, American Civilization. Why? Because it truly, it fits my loves together. I think at rock bottom, I, I'm a sociologist, which is my joy. Any You still participate in? Absolutely. So To me, anything I see, it's all... Why are people, we're tribal. We are absolutely tribal and we look at it sometimes as community. Community, I think we see as the positive version of tribal and the in-group, out-group. Uh, what I was saying about you know the Leonese, what's going on now with the wall, it's hatred brings us together. 
Hatred is used as a way to well, bind brings, people It brings against a the, group together. Yes, yeah. it, it binds us against the other. Right. We have this shared togetherness against something else. Right. It's kind of like we're on the same football team against something. Yeah. In a in a hatred, rather than recognizing that we're all a community. When you're looking at a wall, you're you're standing on one side of it. Well, I mean, aside from that, I mean, I mean, if you want to be effective and cheap, like an electric fr- electric fence, you're like when you're at the backyard party, you and you're bzz, zap, you know. So you're saying we should have an electric fence? Well, no, but if, you, if you're gonna have if you're gonna have something that works, I mean, duh, I mean, how clumsy. But I mean, I as, I mean, I mean aside I'm, I'm from a, that, I'm like a uh, a. Uh, God, why can't I? It's like how stupid is this guy? But yeah, well, that's that's an aside. I mean, it's a it's a horrible, horrible symbol of waste and hatred and ignorance. It's it's a symbol of ignorance and intolerance. But ignorance, if you're going to do it, do it well. Right. But the idea that you're even thinking about it and showing that we're building a new Berlin Wall, that's clever. Well, the opposite is, I, I think, is is John Lennon's song "Imagine." You know, where he said, you know, imagine a a, a place where there's no, you know, there's no boundaries. There's no national, uh, I'm not using his lyrics, of course, but, um, you know, there's, there's them. no religion. There's no, right. you know, there's no boundaries in our culture that separate us as people. Mm-hmm. There's no tribalism. There's no reason to look across at the other group and say they're different. But I think that's tragic. Why? I love regional culture. I well, think. Th- you don't have to get rid of regional culture in order to have that world. Did you hear about that guy in Canada who claims that he's from the future? He's being held right now by the Canadian authorities. He, uh, he claims that he's from the year 8,600. And he said he comes from a time. He's like a guy in the modern day CIA of Canada, whatever it is Uh at that time in 8,600. And they can travel through time Mm -hmm. and they investigate different things. in. Did he lose his passport? He ended up getting in some kind of, fight in his wherever he was and he got pushed through a portal and he ended up here hmm. but he said uh hate it when that happens but he said that yeah. in the period that he's from mm-hmm. there is no there are no countries there are no religions humanity has now learned how to access the majority of their brains right and we are now in a culture where everybody is essentially like working every day to elevate over all human race and like mm-hmm. science and all this stuff is like right. through the roof because everybody's working towards the same goals all over the planet. Right. That's the John Lennon vision in my mind. So in that – in his world though, right. it, you still have regional flavors. But in a way, isn't that – it's from – it's a strange utopia, but I always think of if you're a if you're a Maasai warrior, or in places I've been traveling in Irian Jaya, the idea that there are countries, those people have never been anywhere more than twenty kilometers around them, and the idea that there are nation states, we have this fiction in our uh, in our mind that there really are like there's a dotted line, there's a globe, it's all round, and there's a dotted line around places. And there are rights attached to those places. There are leaders and those things exist. We all believe that. And, you know, the person out there who their issue is having food, staying warm, feeding their family, they have as many children as possible because at least a few of them won't live past five. They're an agrarian society. They need enough people to farm. That's their reality. You know, culture is not linear. Is their reality any different than ours? Their sense of community, you know, being together, feeding their community, not unreasonably warring against the other one when there's not water. So you know, there's I, no morality necessarily against with survival. Right. So I get the impression that you're a bit, I'll use the word, you're an absorber, right? So your your culture is dynamic, meaning you meet people that are interesting and you you investigate what you find interesting about them, right? You, you don't siphon yourself off into one group and stick with them for a long period of time. Um, that being Other said... Other people make me so happy. New people or just people new in people. general? It's, to be honest, one of the... If I had to think of a... If there's one characteristic that I'm probably... That is the most meaningful to me, that if, I, if there's something I feel like I have to offer in the universe is I think I, I have an ability to help people see qualities in themselves that they, that they don't see themselves. I can spend time with someone, and it truly is my joy. 
Well, you're good at it. There'll be things that people don't know that they're really good at. And, and it's never bullshit. It has to be absolutely true. And just talking to them, I get to inform them of a quality they have. And I like to think they take that and make use of it. It's so funny though, that you, and I do think you're amazing at that. I think that your personality, I think everybody in this room can speak to that. It's infectious, but you're, um, it's funny that you, you have that talent and then you, and I don't want to skip over all the stuff between Brown Mm -hmm. and, and where you are now, but that you chose law as a profession to Mm -hmm. exercise that. Can you, Mm -hmm. can you talk about that for a second? You know, to me, I feel like I'm sort of the Mm anti-lawyer. Everything one thinks of as the skill and qualities and business of a lawyer, which is uh, confrontation and conflict and mastering the facts in order to achieve an objective on behalf of your client. I I think of that. We're more like conflict management, right? Um, Yes and no. It is conflict management, but to the objectives of your client. And I feel like all of that is sort of the opposite of how I go about my day and my profession. To me, it's it's an exercise in creativity. First, it's figuring out when my client comes in, it's, you know, I do uh, uh, transactional law. I don't sue people. The If there's anything I've learned, and it comes up all the time, my clients are individuals, my clients are not corporations, or they're an individual that owns a company, but it's always a person. Someone will come in saying, this person, it's a horrible thing. Look what they did to me. It's awful. I want to sue them. This is just terrible. How do I get as much as I can against them? And I'll say, you know what? What's really going on, what you want deeply, you want them to say they're sorry and admit they're wrong. That's what's at the base of this. Of course, it's your right to sue them, but what's going to happen? It's going to be the first thing you think of every day when you wake up in the morning and the last thing you think of when you go to bed. And it's going to cost you a lot of money, and it's going to last several years. It's going to be the worst part of your life. Oh, absolutely. Think of all that positive energy you could have instead. Give yourself a gift and let it go. And, I mean, I'm sure you would be one to say that typically when you sue somebody, you end up spending more than you get. Well, in emotional capital. Yeah. Well, I mean, What's more important, what's more valuable than, than a positive attitude and outlook in your life? And them being sorry, that's just out of your control. Let it go. So obviously I'm not a litigator. But, <laughs> and when it has to happen, I have a dear, dear friend that who is dispassionate about this. But truly, it's where I get to be creative. Because I will, in a contract, I will talk to the other side and say, here's my perception of what's going on in your company. My job is to make that guy look great for giving me everything I want. Because it has to be reasonable. My guy will come to me and say, I want a lot of money. And I'll talk to him. I'll say, no, you really don't. I won't say that to him, but what is it that is really important? And I'll recognize in my work, when it's a fashion designer being hired for the creative director of a luxury brand, uh, be it Balenciaga or Christian Dior, what it often is, they want to bring their team. And that's something I can go to the other side and say, what this person really needs is something you should give them because it's in service of the common goal. Right. This is what this person needs to do their job well. It's going to make them more productive. And I'll go to the mat for that. So let's take a break. And when we come back, I would love to know, we can jump right into how you got into your current legal profession and specifically how it matched up with fashion. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's some passions in there as well. Um, And then maybe you can tell us a story or two about that. All righty then. Follow the show on Instagram at solar underscore stories, and you can find more episodes of Solar Stories and learn more about solar at solar.com. So let's jump into it because um, I think I told you earlier, one of the specific reasons why I said I've got to chase down Betsy and talk to her Mm -hmm. about what she knows and felt and and feels is because I saw the documentary McQueen. Mm -hmm. And I know that you represented Lee. uh, Was it during the last eight months of his life or was it during a period just before that? Oh, no. I represented him when he was absolutely nobody before he was hired by the Gucci group. I, my, 
Before he even went to uh, Givenchy? No, no. I represented him when the Gucci group came to him and said, we want to... uh, we want to buy your brand and bring you into our company and start, you know, we want to launch your brand with some money. So, so it was long before he was anybody. He yeah. was a, he kind of had his own line that he was making money. He, he was uh, investing whatever he made at Givenchy into building his into own his brand. Into his shows, yeah. Right. So he wasn't, he wasn't anybody. Even at, his shows were unbelievable. Right. Better than his Givenchy shows, mostly everybody well, said, yeah. But his last, I mean, you might want it on tape because his last Givenchy show, that whole thing is fascinating. Right, with the gr- woman who got sprayed and all that? No, no, no. His, they didn't even, um, Givenchy was so mad because basically De Soleil uh, pulled Lee out from under them with our sort of sleight of hand that he, um, they closed the whole show, it was Couture, they closed the show to all the press they only had uh, buyers, and it was only 40 people. And it was a tiny, tiny, beautiful room, gorgeous, and he refused to come out. Oh, my He God. refused to come out and take a bow, and we're behind, we're behind the curtain saying, go, you, you, you must. And he's standing there and said, no. Fuller said, no. Everybody's waiting. They're waiting. They're clapping. And there are 40 people, gorgeous, and he wouldn't move. Finally, we pushed him, pushed him, and his sewers. Uh, in France, they call them les petits mains, right. which means the little hands. Right. The people who work day in and day out, many of them are old women. And, and they've been there for tailors. decades. Yeah. And he took them by the arm, and about nine of them all went out together, which was, you know, that's who he was. He had absolutely no sense of being above anyone, and that was beautiful. That was the way. That was the only way he would go out and take a bow on behalf of the work he did for uh, for Givenchy. So that wasn't the show where the model was in the giant ball gown that got sprayed by the robots. Oh no, no, that's that's his. That was brilliance. way before that. No, I think that was after. It was after. Okay, I believe. so it wasn't his last Givenchy show. The one you. Oh just no, mentioned. he didn't do anything interesting for Givenchy. Got it. His interesting shows were only for his own brand. Got it. No, his creativity was just a lot of it. I think also came from his partnership with Nick Knight, who is a fantastic. Nick and Charlotte are just amazing, amazing people. Nick as a photographer, but also Charlotte as his partner and what they did for Show Studio. If you know it, it was one of the original one of the original things that actually mattered online. Just absolutely fantastic, and they collaborated with Lee from early, early on. So take me back in your life a little before that. So you get out of law school, and where'd you go to law school, by the way? Uh, Columbia. Columbia. So you went from Brown, sociologist, you went to Columbia Law School, mm-hmm. and you studied, is it called transactional law? Like what? Um, in law school, you study sort of everything. Yeah. The first year is sort of, and I went out of my way not to take any Sounded like there was somebody else in the room for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Laughing about the corporate everything. I went out of my way not to take any corporate anything because I was bound and determined I didn't want to be a lawyer in a company. That sounded so terrible. And actually, I had no idea that people run companies and that that's what I do all day long. I do a lot of employment law, but it's people that are at the center of things and how they move forward with whatever their vision is in a larger way than as they do as individuals. Right. So you get out of law school, and then where'd you go from there? Uh, it's sort of the, and this is something I, I learned from my parents. It might not be what you love the most, but you, it is really uh, get the best things on your resume. You do absolutely the highest, most difficult. When I got out of college, inexplicably, I landed a job in management consulting. It was that or investment banking. What, with like McKinsey or something? Um, no, it was um, Strategic Planning Associates, okay. which among the three or four on campus, that was the most quantitative. I cannot add or subtract. I interview really well, which is not always a good thing. And got through two years as an analyst. Everybody's off to business school, and that's oh my clearly God, not so my boring. thing. It's, it's, it doesn't matter. The results don't matter. And what I found there is... The results, as an analyst, one of our clients was um, a beef slaughtering plant owned by Sarah Lee, 
and can we make it was the last surviving beef slaughtering plant in Milwaukee and all of us little Ivy League kids in our suits went there and did all the numbers on you you, know, you cut the cow this way you did the model of what the pricing is what's the what's the most profitable that day based on the commodity prices of this cut and then determined is this a profitable plant based on the bone which means the part where you cut up the thing that moves going in uh, or the processing where it comes out as like lean cuisine or not quite it comes out as something which parts of these are profitable or not and going into bringing all the people in their white coats right off the right off the kill floor and in a low low ceiling dark room the president gets up and says this year this season we're, we're, the good news you know the bad news is well we're not having a raise next year the good news we're all getting a $500 bonus at christmas and including you guys <laughs> yeah no but that's what all of this was in service of these people were making minimum wage barely yeah. in the barely last beef slaughtering plant surviving in Milwaukee and the owners were so proud of it because they were the only ones that broke the strike. And did it work? Did the, did, did the slaughterhouse stay in business? Yeah, it probably did with these little management consultants in their twenties, in their suits coming out here and running the numbers of how to keep this thing profitable. This is horrible. These people who have absolutely terrible lives make no money and in service of the president going out and saying, Oh boy, you get this, which of course people won't put toward saving toward healthcare. They don't have the luxury of that. You know, no raise. What a horrible I digress. But No, I, I law I, school I loved every minute of it. Well, Absolutely so let me ask you, it. how how did you get and I'm not even for a second demeaning what you just said in the lives of those people. Um but I think I, mean, I, I think what's fascinating is, is how, how did you get from the slaughterhouse to the psychological slaughter of hot couture? You know, I mean, how did you, where, what, what trend? All right. So you started Wait. out as a, as a, uh, consultant, as a uh, management consultant, yeah, okay. as a business analyst, right. And you were using your law degree strategically, but how did you jump to, you know, literally sitting next to Alexander McQueen? I slipped on a banana peel of gigantic luck. It so was, talk about that. Well, it was um, and paying my dues. The prestigious thing to do after law school is a clerkship, which is essentially research and writing and having no people around it, which right. to me is the crucible of hell. For a judge. But no, the judge likes it, and that's why he has the job. For me, <laughs> as the law school clerk, that is the crucible of hell. For someone who really needs to be around people and loves contracts and the moving pieces of a contract. So it's like taking a research paper off the top of a pile, writing the research paper, wing it by the judge and handing it out there. It was horrible. But it's the pay your dues. Then went to uh, Cravath. Fantastic, really up there. Ooh, big firm. I know that. Big. How did you get there? That Working really a... hard and having the best grades in law school and having the clerkship and... Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean for all the things of the skill sets... Must quite an I, interview process. Well, you know, it was... That's sort of the pay your dues and get to the things that are the... Uh, that keep the doors open. And from there, I got to what I really wanted to do, which was entertainment law. Okay. Which everyone wants to do it because it sounds sexy and interesting and whatever. And so it is a pretty high bar to get there. And I got a job at one of the two firms in Manhattan that I really wanted. Why specifically were you inter interested in entertainment? I love creative people. I mean, I sort of went through the gee, what ifs in law school. I was thinking of uh, criminal law, um, international human rights, and ended up in entertainment. But I just, I like being around creative people. And that was the first place where Criminals I felt like Criminals are I... creative people. <laughs> well, you know what they are. You know, in fact, and I, now in hindsight, I could have been a tax lawyer. Tax lawyers are intellectuals and profoundly creative. But it would not have been my scene, socially. And I loved uh, entertainment. But what I realized is, it's boring. You know, not to diss any of the entertainment lawyers in the universe. It's just not that hard. Yeah. Uh, independent film is my favorite thing in the world, but the money is in Hollywood and I can't stand the product or the process of the lawyers and managers and agents 
and everybody wants to be more fabulous to their clients, nobody wants to get the job done. Yeah. No one wants to have, gee, let's all work together and have a fabulous thing and get out of the way. So funny. I was walking with our friend Christopher through uh, one of the biggest uh, entertainment representative talent agencies in the world Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. We both looked around and I thought, we could take this place over pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Completely. Yeah. It's uh, it's a funny world. Um, I would love to know uh, at what point you had your first business trip and uh, you were on the plane and walking back from the plane, having gone to the bathroom, something happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, th- this is this is the big, this is one of the many nightmares of being in the wrong place which is management consulting. Right. This is, you're supposed to do all these things. The first business trip on my way to Miami, you get all, you're in the suit, you got the whole thing, got a little silk skirt, the jacket, sitting at the front of the plane, not business class, but you walk all the way to the back, you come all the way to the front, and you're like, you're you're smoothing down your skirt before you sit down in the seat, and you realize that your silk skirt has been tucked into the top of your pantyhose. (laughs) For the view of and the entire all, plane, for the whole that. sixty people, and the good thing is the plane doors open and out you go. <laughs> That's the sort of thing you want to tell when you're being honored for the Nobel Prize, and you want to sound you know humble when you get up there and start That's your right. speech. Well, I've th- tucked this my is as good as it's going to happen right now. <laughs> so um, you fell into entertainment law because you worked hard and it was something you thought you were interested in. Uh, you quickly realized it's easier than you thought. It probably became boring for you. And then at what point did you make the switch over to uh, representing um, people in the fashion industry? I can tell you exactly why. And it's funny because we, we come back to Nick Knight. Yeah. It's funny. I hadn't thought of it this way, that I went to great entertainment firm. It was getting bigger. It took on people in litigation, which mean there are people in the office that wore suits. And that was kind of the beginning of the end. Went to a smaller firm that had just gotten Prada as a client. Wow. They had a number of... Um, U.S. firm? Yes. They had a number of significant modeling agencies as clients. And there had been a case where Nick Knight was the photographer and a woman, uh, one of the models, they were doing a shoot and she was on a trampoline, flew off, allegedly broke her something or other. We were representing the model and Prada had been had hired Nick and was on the shoot. And Prada was so impressed with the firm that they said, here, uh, would you negotiate all of our talent engagements? And I had just gotten there, did a bunch of work in advertising and overscale talent, and I said, I'll take that. So for three years, I worked directly with the communications director in Milan, who ended up being a dear friend, the first one and then the second one, and negotiated for the... You know, in those days, the, it would be the end of the shows, and Mrs. Mucha would say, I want that girl. And that was the $400,000 exclusive for a season. And I'd go back to you know, the people that I negotiated against at IMG, who, now, who are now at their various places in their career, who I know. Also, the photographers and photographers' agents, those are the people, I mean, the photographers are artists. They make money doing commercial shoots, but they're really the artists and their agents. And to me, negotiating is this person, you know, Prada's really rigid. We don't give you extra days. We don't give you overages. Yeah, they're very conservative. Well, it's like they're really harsh in their terms. What can I give you? I can't give you this. What can I give you? Let me work with you. You need this many days off in the middle to do something else. Okay, let's work with that. And we had wonderful relationships in figuring it out. And I left the firm to go out on my own. You know, left Prada behind because you just don't do that. You don't take the client. And those agencies all became my clients and sent me their people. Hence, wow. Oh, so you were out on your own at that yeah. point. Yeah. I, and you've been out on your own ever since? Yeah, 17 years. Wow. And that's when the phone rings and it's McQueen. Just when I got on a plane to London and kind you? of never so came back. So he called you personally or somebody yeah. on his team? No, he called one of the – because one of the agents, the photographer's agents who I'd come to know well – she represented photographers, art directors, something, and she said, here, call Betsy. I got on a plane to London and kind of didn't come back. And it was funny because it was so intense. I'd been there, you know, two or three weeks, and it was that intense with Gucci that the head of strategic acquisitions that I was battling against said, well, I'm coming by in a half an hour. Get dressed. Huh? There's a Christmas party at the president's house. <laughs> You're coming. 
at the president of Gucci. And it was this really collegial, lovely something or other. And, you know, it's for Thanksgiving. And that's just how it was for the many, many months there. So you were placed in there uh, at the uh, permission of Gucci really to represent uh, Lee. Oh, it was no permission. Personally. Of, no, it was no permission at all. So, I so was Lee's, Lee called me and said, So he called lawyer. you and said, I want you to be my lawyer yes, in, this, in this transition. Right. And I'm facing off represent against my the interest. strategic acquisitions guy. And my first meeting, I don't know where I came up with this, showed up in this long board meeting, you know, with about, you know, 10 old white guys and me and Lee and Lee's 900 year old accountant from Bristol. And I'd been studying up night and day for three weeks, reading how these transactions are supposed to go. And the strategic acquisitions guy from down at the end is putting it out there. And I said, forget it. You can't have the majority with his name and his trademark. And the guy says, we absolutely have to. And he was so aggressive and so awful. I was like this far away from saying that guy's out of here or we're leaving. I don't know what I was thinking, but I'm sure Lee supported that. Well, nobody knew anything. It was like Larry Moe and Curly, and I was Moe or something. And that went on back and forth, and it finally worked itself out. I battled against him also, uh, James MacArthur. Just absolutely difficult, hardcore, really impossible. He and I ended up becoming dear friends. We'd see each other at industry conferences forever. We ended up having our, our two-person uh, softcore book club. <laughs> And oh we would exchange God. dirty books at these great uh, <laughs> at industry conferences. And he's been one of my nearest and dearest since then. So in the end, though, didn't they – I mean they did get his his name. Yep. They did get his trademark. Oh, yeah. So that didn't happen under your watch Absolutely is what you're saying. Absolutely, it did. That was, that was the deal we made. Oh, it, it was It took eight deal. months. And it was the right deal. It was, I mean the terms of it were the challenge and I guess sort of posthumously all these things are out in the open only because it made sense for Lee – how do you, and this is sort of the joy of what I do, how do you create an incentive for someone like Lee, known as sort of the bad boy, how do you constrain him to act uh, appropriately within a corporate organization? How does he commit to a long-term employment situation in a corporate scenario? When he's working for Givenchy, he steals all the sheets and takes off, which is just the, the slightest of infractions compared to what he sewed in Prince Charles as the inside of his coat, which is a awful story that everybody knows. It's, I don't. When he was on um, Savile Row, they, he was 16-something. Prince Charles had a coat redone, and he's doing the inside of, of the lining, and he arranges the felt inside the lining to say, I am a cunt. What? You have to how did that? It. How did that get found out? He lore. told somebody. It's lore. Okay. It is absolutely fantastic Lee McQueen lore. Oh my God! You just you can't beat that. So, but one of the interesting things, though, about the documentary that I saw was that um, one of the interviewers asked him. They said, "So, what's going to happen to your namesake brand when you die, or when you pass, or when you retire, mm -hmm. whatever? When it's finished? Mm -hmm. um, you know, can you see somebody else doing it in the vision that you have?" And he said, "Absolutely not." He said, "I would just assume that when I die, my brand dies." Um, so I'm curious I've how you look at the agreement because I'm sure there's an answer. Well, I'm also curious though, how Lord. you convinced him psychologically to overcome that objection that he had in his head, because clearly you guys worked out what, a deal that he agreed. But to. it's not as though it's up to him. What was in the challenge for him was because no one would invest in, uh, a brand or a person if they couldn't have a pretty good sense that that person is going to continue to show up and be the designer. You can't force someone to work. If he says, look, forget it, I'm staying home, then you know, Gucci's put its money somewhere where it's not really going to get it out. So for him, the deal I made was, look, he you can buy 51% of his company, which they weren't going to do anything different. You own the trademark, and if he breaches the agreement on the employment side, which of course anybody can do, and knowing that he's got a... Um, uh, peripatetic relationship with authority, let's say, if he burns the place down, of course you can fire him, uh, but you can't take his shares if he hasn't done something so horrible and tarnishing to the trademark that you still use it. You can't take his shares, but he can't vote. And they What would they be said, horrible? Okay. Like, like what John Galliano did with his anti-Semitic yeah. marks? I mean, okay. If, if, but well, he did worse they, than that, you know, didn't they he? Still used I mean, Lee, Lee had a... Pretty bad mouth, well, right? But see, that it's much less than that. If anybody walked around with a camera behind 
most of the designers day in, day out, off the charts. There'd be no way to politically justify continuing to sell uh, clothes under the brand. It is a fiction that, oh no, someone said something, it's all over. I mean, it's it's like the Trump administration. Right. You know, compared to the old days. Right. Oh no, this happened with Bill Clinton. You know what? It's Once it's all out there and it's all common, people are inured to what awful things might be, which in fact have nothing to do with the brand, the clothing, and whether or not people buy it. Yeah. I mean, that that's the illusion of purity or the illusion of political correctness, which has nothing to do with why people buy clothes. Well, it's funny. That even connects back to law. I mean, it's precedent. Well, it's social precedent. Yeah. What's a terrible thing and what's not. Right. Uh, you know, Galliano really, really got a raw deal. Yeah. You know, troubled his own issues. It's not as though a company who wanted to, uh, who wanted to provoke that kind of a termination international scandal could do it for any designer in the world. Yeah, like why? Why isn't it happening with Dolce and Gabbana right now for the same reasons? Could or even, I mean, anybody. the blackface stuff with Prada. It I mean, it's happen happening to in real time. Anybody. Those yeah. are really houses, though. He was a designer. Mm. Galliano was. He was over Dior at the time. Um, yes. Got, yeah. So he, he was a designer at a house, you know, Dolce & Gabbana, and actually, forget which one said this, but they said the same thing. They said, uh, when we, we don't have a succession plan. When right. Dolce & Gabbana die, when we die, Dolce right. & Gabbana dies. So, um... Well, you like to say that when it's you. You want to say to your investors, by the way, we matter, don't, ma- don't knock us off. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think they have a lot of outside investment, right? They might be private. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think they but are. That's, that's the thing, the conundrum about luxury fashion is that there's the pretense that, uh, I mean, look at Balenciaga. No one knew anything about Cristobal Balenciaga. Right. Does it matter to the consumer that whatever Balenciaga is when it's bought and relaunched by the Gucci group has anything to do with the original aesthetic of Cristobal Balenciaga? Who knows and who cares other than uh, art historians specialized in fashion? The consumer doesn't care except that it sounds exotic and prestigious. Right. I mean, really. It's a there symbol. A, I wish I'd taken a photo of a screenshot of the television on New York One. It was a, a shooting in the Bronx, and the photo was the person you know, standing in the rain with the flashing lights behind them of a shooting, and right next to the person was someone with their back turned with Balenciaga on the back of the sweatshirt. It was just a miserable neighborhood. It was more than you can possibly imagine of the low-end, probably not even knockoff of the now the sort of the culture for everybody, Balenciaga sneakers and name on absolutely everything. And it brought me back to rambling, but fantastically interesting. I did the Nicolas Jasquier deal when the Gucci group said, we want to launch a brand under you. And he said, I love Balenciaga. I've been working here for years. And they said, well, can we make a deal? We'll buy it for you. I said, well, he'll stay if you give him 10% of the brand. So they did. That was wow. that was the deal on the that was that was the deal that followed right after McQueen, and part of that, uh, I don't remember why I was in again was it in Shanghai, you know, doing a sort of walking around malls. A friend of mine was the CEO of Chloe, and we were at a conference uh, in Hong Kong, and he said, "I've got to go look at store locations in Shanghai." I said, well, "I've never been to the mainland." Oh, good, come with me. So I spent five days walking around malls with Ralph Toledano and walked into a, uh, a mall in Shanghai and there were Balenciaga shirts made out of polyester, the worst thing you've ever seen because that was the thing with Balenciaga. They were knockoff? No, they were real. They were it licensed? The, they, yeah. It was the world's worst low-end licensed products ever and now they've come full circle into the world's worst low-end licensed products that you see in the background of the flashing lights in a shooting in, in the Bronx. And they are exactly the licensed products. They're not knockoffs. It's the same thing that happened to Gucci when the Gucci brand was in the tank of trash, trash. Tom Ford and uh, DeSole spent 15 years bringing it back up to an amazing, wonderful brand, and now it's on the way back down into the tank. It's the cycle of prestige and... Yeah, yes. it's funny though. I mean, there's still a lot of fashion gals who, quite frankly, are in the industry that still worship Balenciaga. So I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that they've been able to maintain their luxury end as long as they've sold out, so to speak. I have to say, my favorite object 
is one of the it's one of the original lariat purses. I remember seeing it at the very beginning. I thought that thing is so ugly. <laughs> that thing is so ugly. But you know, Nikola gave me one at the kind of beginning, and they had the zipper redone, and I still use it. And I'm sure people look at me like. Oh, man, what a loser. Does she not know that that is so, so out? <laughs> it's probably worth a lot, though. Well, it's like, oh, well, I'm so out I'm in, I guess. <laughs> or I'm so old that I have my own vintage. So let me, we should wrap up in a few minutes, mm-hmm. but I really want to talk about, um, was was Lee sick at the time? Was he? Absolutely. Was he? And, and so in addition to trying work out the best deal for him, mm-hmm. you had to deal with him as a person who was yes. on a personal down spiral. Yes. So it wasn't a down spiral. I think it it says a lot about Europe itself. There's not the same conception and I think compassion for mental illness. I, don't th- I still don't think there is. Versus the States. There's, right. There's, I mean, homeopathy is a lovely thing, but I don't think mental illness has ever been taken as seriously and the importance of medication. And Lee had tremendous difficulties. I'm not one at all to diagnose, but I think he had severe bipolar disorder. So he never got diagnosed? I mean, as not, far as you know? In my in my experience with him, he and I'm I'm not the one to choose whatever it is. Yeah. Tremendous anxiety. Thought he was never enough. The most difficult thing We'd worked so hard and finally had the terms ready to sign the term sheet. We went to pick him up and couldn't get him out of bed. And that was his, I think when he just couldn't cope, he just wouldn't face the day. But I still remember the the incredible courage. It was the one thing that still, it absolutely gives me chills. I remember going to him with, here's a make or break decision. Can they, it was a question of, Will you break the deal over this question? And it was about, can they use your name if you say no about X? Can they still? And he looked at me, the guy who came from a family of like, from a taxi driver with nine kids and practically no shoes. And he was about to get $22 million. He looked at me and said, I don't care about the money. I care about my freedom. And that, from that person staring at me, I I will never forget him saying that, but also seeing the incredible anxiety of him trying to manage all of what was going on with a company, with this idea yeah, of a corporation. Yeah, he had too much going on. Well, it wasn't even that. He always did. One of my absolute best friends on earth came in shortly after to be sort of the studio manager who would help guide him through collection planning, something like that. And she became one of the closest people to him in the world. That doesn't surprise me because of her absolute love and devotion to the creative. He needs someone that can genuinely care for him without self-interest. And I think he is a, 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 a tortured genius, sounds flip. An absolutely brilliant and troubled man with terrible anxiety. So and fell la- into drugs and fell into... He's yeah. One of the few people do you think I've... that was really the turn or do you think it was mental no. illness just exacerbated by drugs? Um, it was, he's one of the few people that I've worked that closely with who has not stayed in my life because his, his world was a lot of late night drugs party thing. And that's just, it's just not my thing. So I just, I've kind of lost touch with any of that or the rest of his universe, but what an absolute, absolute tragedy. But for any of us that knew him well, it was not a surprise at all. Not a surprise, just a terrible. So last question then. So mm-hmm. so tell me about that. What do you mean it wasn't a surprise? So you woke up the day that it was announced that mm-hmm. he killed himself mm-hmm. and you weren't surprised? No. Um, terribly, terribly sad. And in the same way with Katie. And you worked with Kate Spade yeah. as well? Yeah. Same thing. Weren't surprised? No. But it's the but, issue but how carrying, has... it's the same thing of carrying a public persona. Once someone I think recognizes they're in the public eye as being something, the level of expectation impossible to live up to what the world believes they're supposed to be. And Katie especially, 
because with the Kate Spade brand, it became kind of the caricature of the neurotic, anxious, cool, martini-drinking 50s housewife, which was brilliant. It was brilliant and clever, and it was a construct created by Katie and Andy. Brilliant marketers. And Katie pulled it off in day-to-day life as being kind of that caricature of brilliant marketing. Andy, her husband? Yes. But I think Is that she, who started Jack Spade? Yes. But I think she almost had to carry that role of the ironic and that person. And it just it gets hard to live up to the persona of being that wonderful, famous, talented, publicly recognizable person in the same way as Lee. Yeah, but with her, it's different because she she was in America. There is a sensitivity around mental illness here. So why was that? Pe- I don't think people knew that she had issues. It was not. She was not as no. extroverted about it. No, got it. No, I mean Re- that was her her circle, and she made an amazing business. The people around her were really really smart women. She did really a fantastic business and got out of it. I worked with right, her. Sold her trans- it, right? Yeah, I worked with her. You in sold her it to ta- Tapestry. That was part of your. Before it was Tapestry, you believe they called it Tapestry. I know. Stupid when it was, name. Uh, oh, when it was Liz Claiborne. Right. Okay. Uh, and she was fortunate in her deal. She was not required to stay on as an employee, so she was out of it. You know, she and Andy were out of it and didn't have to go through that uh, next hoop of performance. A lot of people say that I forget which one happened first, Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Unfortunately, very closely linked. Yeah, I believe but, Anthony but, Bourdain. but I remember reading that that one may have inspired the other, and I'm tr- oh, I can't remember which tragic. one it was. But yeah. it was basically, to your point, it was mm-hmm. a it was a story about how they they can't live up to the people that other people think they are, mm-hmm. and and they don't want to, and therefore yeah. let's just take it Checking all away, out. right? But why do you think that that's so pervasive nowadays? Why do you think like what like be why did social media? You think so? Well, you know, 20 years ago, if you didn't want to be on TV, you weren't on TV. And otherwise, who's going to say anything about you and where are they going to say it? Are they going to call their friends or, you know, speak over the hedge and say bad things about you? It's absolutely tragic. So our researcher just showed us that Kate killed herself three days before Anthony Bourdain. So it was Kate Spade who inspired Anthony Bourdain. And that's what I read. And I, like, and I shouldn't say I like, that that's what I happened. I like to but. think it's not inspired. But in my wildest dreams, in the most depressed moments for any of us, sleep is such a good thing. When I'm having the worst moments of my entire life, I can sleep 16 hours at a time. Yeah, it's I know, a it's so wonderful, wonderful. thing. <laughs> when you just need to check out, yeah. it's a wonderful thing. Well, I mean... Which I don't, is, I don't know if you've I don't, ever, again, I don't mean to be flip about it. No, There's I understand. A, I don't know if you've ever absolute. battled with clinical depression. I, I have. I've been medicated for it before, and I've threatened to kill myself. And it it is such a low that you really can't find a way out of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and suicide literally becomes an option only because it's a realistic way of, right. of describing the end of this pain, mm-hmm. right? And I'm just... I'm curious if you think that uh, you mentioned it that social media or the the active lifestyle that is today's celebrity is enhancing that pain has to be absolutely has to be i mean i i not i'm the only reason I'm on Facebook is nominally, so if I want to go look at anybody else, I can. I have absolutely no interest. It's never occurred to me. I really like my Instagram. It's sort of like if I think of going home to, you know, mom and dad's refrigerator when I'm 10 and say, would you please put this up with the magnet on the refrigerator? That's my Instagram. I really like it. It's like my drawings and neat little pictures that I find. And that's the only thing it would ever occur to me. Well, it's funny. I'm the same way. I mean, all these amazing, we'll call them influencers. We all hate that word. But all these amazing people in our lives with you, it's these incredible talents. And with me, it's uh it's it's the community that's involved in solar mm-hmm. and and yet i don't follow a lot of them myself because i feel like the moment that you celebrate them for the the caricature of who they are right. right maybe it's the caricature of clarity versus you know greg davis junior it 
it begins to you, you begin to think and act differently around those people. And I think it, it sort of changes the way that you interact with them as well. And I've just See, never cared it would to never engage. It never to me to follow any of the designers that I, I don't, to be honest, I don't really care about their work. Um, the, the designers that move me, I find that when I'm in Paris or the things that, when, when you say what gets me out of bed in terms of the design world, are just wacky off the baby ghost is one of my favorite brands in the world. The designer, I just love him to death. What Do you represent they, him? There's nothing to represent. <laughs> he just became a friend. I love this guy. He is so creative. Designs out of Shanghai. Another of my favorites is Bernard Wilhelm. Just, I love going to the studio. I, I'm blessed to be able to make a personal order every season. And the stuff they make is just wacky. One season, apparently all their, the whole team was more or less locked on the mountain up in Piedmont for two months, and all their clothing, amazing fabric, I could shop by just touching things, everything had a little outline of a corn cob, because they were all so damn sick of eating polenta. <laughs> that, that, to me, makes me laugh and gives me joy. I gave my sister a sweater that I got there, and it was sort of a, looked like an Icelandic sweater. And the design on the front was like a pixelated squirrel. This is what gives me joy. Things are supposed to be funny and happy. And that's what gives me joy about fashion. How much luxury stuff do we need? So the seriousness of the hot couture designer world, you think it's just stuffy and boring and a waste of time. I, mean, I love the craftsmanship. I mean, to me, clothing is expression and it's fun. I'm I know you're wearing a t-shirt that you literally ran over. At and nine. it literally what is, is one of the what coolest is a, what is t-shirts i What is a nine-year-old doing in the car? <laughs> Mom and dad. At nine years old, you did that to that t-shirt? Yeah. I can't believe you still have it. I love this. My husband said, can't you throw that out now? It's really gross. It's like, no, I've recycled this in every Halloween costume for many, many years. It's very It's my favorite. Oh, and by the way, just because one should, I brought you a present. And this is one of those presents that is, in fact, not a gift. What did you bring? It's a gift, but it's not a gift. And I'm, it's one of those things that I will ask you about for years, and I'll pretend... Did we talk about this or something? No. I'll ask you about it for years, and I'm pretending it's a gift, and it's really not. So, did you like it? Are you David finished? David Foster Wallace. Have you finished it? Do you know anybody that did, or said they did and didn't lie? Did you? Yes. You finished? I skimmed their parts, I skimmed. But is there anybody that you know... No. That really read the whole thing? This isn't bad. This is like Ayn Rand length. This is, yeah, this is doable. Will no. You? Oh, no. I haven't it, read will this you? yet. Will I? Absolutely. Kidding me? I'm a... Exactly. I'm going to ask you, gee, next year. So did you read it? When when you are on, when you're that person they interview in um, in the FT, remember that part in the where they say, interview with so-and-so? Right, right, right. I would die in good heaven if I'm that person. <laughs> and they say, so what books are on your nightstand? We all get to say infinite jest because no one's really going to finish it. That's a present for you. Thank you so that's much. That's a present that's not a present. This is, my, this is my holiday gift from Betsy Pierce, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. I will read this Which cover to cover. Which is 10,000 pages long. I will read this cover to cover, and I mm -hmm. will come back to you with an analysis. In a decade and a half. We need to wrap up. I want you to quickly tell me your story about being lost in the mountains. That's I want a, you to, I want, because I think it ties in very specifically to your personality and how you are not a loner, but very independent. Mm -hmm. And so first of all, why were you in the mountains by yourself? And then how did you get lost? And what mountains were they? Um, it was near Telluride. My husband and I go to the Telluride Film Festival every year. Probably. Near like Red Mountain, like that area? No, no, no. Um, near the San Juan, uh, the San Juan Valley. Okay. Uh, Love, love independent film. Yeah. It's four days long. It's a four film a day kind of thing. And we go a week early to hike around. And I like hiking by myself. I prefer it. And I also kind of trot because just hiking for a long thing is really boring. And I sort of thought, oh, I'll go out for a little, you know, three-hour thing. And Husband's being, not with you. No, no I, he's doing some work thing. I said, oh, good, I'll go by myself. And grab sort of the light windbreaker. It's not going to rain. Get up there before it rains. And, you know, imprudent water. Well, I grabbed three cans of Diet Root Beer. Off I went. 
and the map sort of didn't really have the rest of the hike in it, whatever. And so trotting along, the other people had done it the day before and they were not exactly um, fit and energetic. So I'm off on the trail and finding these little cairns and they're little cairns that kind of go off this way. And I'm thinking, well, this might not be it. And I'm up at the way, way up. It's been three hours up the lip of something and thought, you know, that's probably not it. And I'm not going to go deep around that thing. I don't want someone to have to come fish me out later. And I found that I went back and forth and over and back. And this stream is supposed to be the stream back and forth and back and forth. I was getting really, really thirsty and recognized that I was not really going to find where I was supposed to be finding. No phone reception. And it was eight hours. Uh, Why didn't you drink from the stream? It didn't occur to me. It was a, kind of a hypothermia thing. It had been raining, and I was so cold. And it started to dawn on me. I hadn't seen a person all day. It was out in the middle of nowhere, nowhere. And it starts to dawn on me that this might not end well. I really started to think it's like a one out of a hundred chance that this is not going to end the way it's, the way inertia is bringing it to end. You know, trivial as it is, I'm thinking, what's my obituary going to say in women's wear daily? <laughs> I mean, doesn't that sound terrible? Yes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, I could kind of curl up in this sort of niche at the bottom of a tree, but I'm thinking that's not going to, I mean, it's so cold you can't feel any of your limbs. What were you wearing? Um, shorts and a soaked through windbreaker. So not clothes for overnight. No, no, it was 50 degrees out. 50 going down below 50 and raining. And I was soaked and had been hiking for 10 hours. And it was starting to get dark. And it really was like, huh. Spent literally three hours saying, hmm, it's over. Just, I didn't expect it to end this way. I'm not going to have Easter with mom and dad. Huh. So, out of the blue, I look across the stream, and the strange part was, it didn't occur to me to yell or shout, in part because I thought there's no way there's going to be anybody around, but also I thought, I'm too embarrassed. I'm too embarrassed to yell out loud. What? I know. You, might, you, you, were thought, you the, thought you might die, and you were too embarrassed but to yell. None but none of these things make sense. Right. And I was so thirsty it also didn't occur to me to drink out of the stream. Just, this is major hypothermia setting Well, diatab will do that to your brain, just so you know. But it was <laughs> just... And across the stream, finally, I see, like, a little flicker of light. And it's these two kids that happened to go camping and decided to stop for the night rather than go up and over the mountain that I got three quarters of the way up. And I got there... And I was afraid to ask them for some of the soup that they were having. Just strange. You didn't tell them what was going on with you? That you were lost, yeah. that you were dehydrated, that you were scared? Yeah. You did? And, yeah. And for them, it was just sort of like, oh, all right. And I was afraid to ask them to hike me out. Just that I felt so... I don't know why. So what happened? Um, I warmed up and, st and I thought, should I... You know, they're, uh, should I continue? And they said, well, you know, just if you want to, you know, it's pitch dark. You know, just holler and if you get in trouble, we'll come find you. Why it didn't occur to me. You know, they I'm had. I'm surprised they let you go. That's really and, stupid. But I just can't imagine why they. And I said, well, if they're looking for me, they'll be on this path and they'll find you. Okay. And I got warm in the next morning as soon as it was kind of daybreak. I just took off and ran. I was three miles off course. And. Oh, but, so you walked all night. No, I stopped there and got warm and thought as soon as it got slightly light, I took off and ran. There had been a search plane out by the time I got home. All the people at the little resort I was staying at, all the men, nine of them, had been out hiking all night. The sheriff, everyone had been hiking all night long looking for me. And I guess the things that I learned out of this was the ubris, that I thought I can just go out and hike and be fine and everything is always going to be fine for me. Nothing's ever going to happen to me. I've spent my whole life, you know, the motorcycle, I had kind of close calls, and oh, well, it's always going to be fine. I've done all kinds of high alpine hiking, you know, almost died on Kilimanjaro of dehydration, whatever, but it turned out fine. Nothing's ever really going to happen to me. 
And my only thought on this trip was, I really should turn around because I don't want other people to have to come find me. All these things. And in that situation, I didn't want to put these guys out for hiking. And then I got back. And the worst part of it is realizing what other people had done. Yeah, they were never, so worried about it. I will you. never, ever forgive myself for what those people went through. And my husband, he was writing my obituary. I mean, if someone's out all night long in 45, 50 degrees and raining, that person's not coming back. They were waking up people in campsites all over the mountain. And people that I didn't know, people that worked in the kitchen, people that were there traveling that at this resort, all those people were out all night looking for me. I will never forgive myself for that. And for the next days, I couldn't speak to anybody. All I could read was things like Into Thin Air. All I could read was survivor stories, and there's nobody else in the world, nothing else I could possibly connect to. So anyway, on that happy note, that's a a fucked up one. That's intense. But if there's anything to remember, don't think you know what you're doing, and don't think you can't make everybody else's life awful by almost being gone. (laughs) Well, Betsy, on that lovely note, I would like to thank you again for your time today on Solar Stories. And toast to the beauty of life in every single day. Toast to you, to the holidays, to your gift. Thank you so much. I love you dearly and the community that you're making. I am so, so grateful to be part of the community's everything. And thank you for the welcome. We love you as well. Cheers. Cheers. That's it for Solar Stories. Thank you so much for listening. Please come back next time for another great guest and another great story on the art and business of influence. I'm George Manley. This is where the story starts. We can't wait to hear yours. Solar Stories is presented by Solar Inc. You can find more about solar at solar.com. Copyright 2019. Solar Inc. All rights reserved. Thank you for listening.